This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications here at the firm. One of our recent episodes was all about Chinese markets, what to make of trade tensions and the continued opening up of the stock market there. But one big area we didn't touch on was what the private equity landscape in China looks like today. Joining us to talk about that and other topics, Allison Mass and Brian DeCenzo from our investment banking division. Allison runs the Financial and Strategic Investors Group within that division, and Brian runs the Innovation Lab for the Investment Bank. Allison, Brian, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you. So, Allison, let's start with you. You've been going to Asia for over 20 years to meet with private equity clients. How have you watched particularly the Chinese private equity market mature, and what's been different that you've seen in your most recent trip there? When Brian and I came back, we were traveling together over the course of about a week earlier this year. There were three things that really hit me. One, the scale of both the funds and the deals being done. Second is the sophistication of the clients we met with and the discussions that we were having were just on a completely different level. And third, just their relevance to the global markets. When I came back and we looked at the number of deals that are being done, the fees paid, it just really hit me. I mean, literally, I've been going there for 20 years, seeing the same client base, seeing them evolve, having the same discussions that we have with private equity firms in the U.S. and Europe. But it never felt real. It felt like it was developing. It never felt that it had heft. And I literally walked out of these meetings and I said, I could have been in New York. I could have been in London. I could have been anywhere in the world. So it feels at a very different level. And I think the scale, the sophistication, and the relevance of the global markets are here to stay. Just to give you a perspective of scale, the average deal sizes are getting much larger. In 2018 year to date, the deal sizes are almost $900 million average. You should also know that 25% of all deals done in the sponsor M&A space are in Asia, and that has been for the last couple of years. And if you look at the algorithms that the public databases show, 20% of all fees are coming out of Asia in the private equity space. Now, that's an algorithm, so it's not 100% accurate, but it directionally shows why this client base and Asia are so relevant. Yeah, it used to be that there was a decent market for investing, but the fees were lower, right? And today, that's really changing. Correct. There have been some really significant deals done in the region, including the Bain-Toshiba $18 billion transaction, Hill House, Hopu, GIC did a $16 billion deal, CIC and Blackstone Real Estate, Logicor was $14 billion. So just the scale of the deals we're seeing is something we've never seen before. In 2017 alone, there were 50 deals done in Asia that were a billion dollars or more. And if you think about that relative to like the 07-2013 timeframe, there were only 10 deals done a year in that size. So there were just more large deals getting done. Let's dig a little deeper on scale. You said the scale striking. Many of the big global PE firms have raised big Asia-focused funds, billions and billions of dollars. What opportunities are those from seeing that are making them so active in fundraising for investing in that region? Well, first of all, when you look at GDP, even looking at the Goldman forecast, the emerging economies, China, Indonesia, Malaysia, Philippines, Thailand, the GDP forecasts from Goldman are 6.7%, 6.5%, 6.3% for 18, 19, and 2020. And if you look India, similarly, higher GDP growth rates, 7.7%, 8.2%. By contrast, the growth forecasts in the U.S. are like 
2.3%, 2.2%, 1.5% for the same period of time. In Europe, even less, 2.2%, one9 1.6%. So these investors are looking for growth opportunities. They're looking to generate outsized returns for their limited partners. And this is an area of the world where they feel like they can get those kinds of returns. Brian, let's talk about the sophistication of the deals. What's changing about the kinds of deals that are getting done in the region and how are they different than what kind of investing has happened there in the past? As you think about the region, it's dangerous to think about it as a region, as a monolith. There are very distinct markets that exist across that region. And you can sort of break it down historically between developed markets like Japan or Australia and the more you know developing markets China in particular, but certainly others, Allison mentioned India, et cetera. The thing that we're seeing right now is deal activity is really firing on all cylinders across all of those different markets in a developed market, large-scale way. So over the course of the last year or two, we've seen multi-billion dollar transactions off the Singapore Stock Exchange, off the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, in Japan and China, as well as multi-billion dollar Asian investors into cross-border deals into the U.S., and you see deals of all types. You see take privates, you see carve-outs. So really what they're exhibiting is sophistication around all deal types that we see in private equity and in much larger size than we've seen historically. And one of the things I noticed when we were there recently is the sophistication of the dialogue about cross-border investing was at a new level. When we walked into clients that were global PE firms who have Asia funds or global funds that do business in Asia, there were people sitting there from their U.S. and European businesses because they want to look cross-border at what businesses they can invest in that can benefit from their China exposure. We never saw that. We never saw the kind of resources getting poured into the region by the global clients. And by the way, we're doing the same thing. We're adding to our headcount and focus. We used to cover 15 private equity firms in Asia, and now we cover 50, probably 100 if you include their sidecar funds. It's an area that not only are our global clients investing in, we're investing in. And then the local funds as well have just such scale. We met with Hill House. They raised a $10 billion fund. We have Bering. Six to seven billion dollar fund, PAG, six billion dollar fund. So it's not only the global funds like the KKRs and the Carlisles and the Baines that have raised big funds, it is the local funds as well. So a lot of capital pouring into the region, or broadly the question is how it would be deployed. Brian, what areas are clients most excited about? What sectors are they looking at? And where do they see the big opportunities there? I would put the opportunities that they would like to seek and in some places are seeking into three buckets. So the first one are scaled opportunities for Asia, quote unquote, domestic firms, firms that exist within Asia, broadly speaking. And we've seen, as we mentioned, some of those transactions. They also want to do cross-border into the U.S. and into Europe. And in some ways, they are very comfortable doing cross-border and dealing with all the attendant issues that come along with that, dealing with different currencies, dealing with different legal regimes. And then the third thing, which we haven't seen as much of, but I think they would really love to do, is partnering with multinational corporations to help them really expand their Asia operations. So, you know, you take a multinational corporation where they're maybe a little bit underweight from an Asian operational standpoint, partner with them either by doing a pipe, a joint venture, et cetera, 
in order to really focus in on the Asia growth element of that business. So I think from a deal type, those are sort of the three buckets of things that people are really focused on. And then what are the other types of things that get them excited about investing in the region? One, anything that touches the Chinese consumer. You have a marketplace of 1.4 billion people, 90 some odd percent of whom live in the eastern fourth of the country, most of them in urban areas. And that creates a very large contiguous market that if you have a product that you can distribute effectively into that market, you can scale a business very dramatically. The second thing is anything that sort of feeds into the Chinese government's 2025 plan. A lot of our discussions are around things like robotics, industrial automation, things that will allow China to continue to be a place of manufacturing for the world. And then three, and this is where I think it's really interesting, businesses that solve some sort of logistical developmental problem that exists within China. So you have 1.4 billion people. It's difficult to feed 1.4 billion people. So we've seen investments into the food space on a cross-border basis. One of the things that China is dealing with right now is they have very limited cold storage logistics, and that becomes challenging from a food spoilage standpoint. So businesses that have leverage to solving some social issue in China, that's where a lot of our clients are also focused. You asked earlier what's really driving investment in the region. And we talked about the scale, sophistication, and relevancy to the global markets. But on the sophistication point, to amplify what Brian was saying, it's the first time that we've been over there where innovation and disruption has been a theme that the Asia private equity community is talking about. It has been talked about in Europe and in the Americas for a long period of time. But the dialogue, the sophistication of what's going to disrupt which industries, what the needs are of China, and how can we get ahead of those trends was something that we have not seen in historical discussions. You also talked about why there's all this capital moving in there. I think we're at a moment in terms of improved macro climate. I talked a little bit about the economic growth prospects. And the capital that our clients have been able to raise has really changed the way that corporates in Asia think about the private equity buyers as well. When we look historically at deal sizes, we've never had this kind of scale. And the average deal size is close to a billion dollars, not even close to where they were five, ten years ago. So the largest corporates in all the Asia regions have woken up and said, this is a pool of partners, capital that we can work with to expand our businesses, to streamline our businesses and to partner with. We're also seeing, obviously, when U.S. assets go up for sale, we're seeing Chinese buyers come into this market, sometimes with very high bids. So, Allison, talk a little bit about the phenomenon of Chinese buyers coming into the U.S. market. Chinese buyers have definitely had an impact on the M&A markets, particularly with U.S. assets. Brian and I spend a lot of time in Asia to get to know those clients so we can separate the true buyers who have the experience to execute and close from those who are a little bit less sophisticated because we're advising our sell-side client and we want to make sure we're giving them the best advice. Who are the Chinese buyers who we truly believe have strategic interest in assets like this, have the teams to do the diligence and close? I will tell you an anecdote. 
about a Chinese buyer in an auction for an asset we were selling in the U.S. It was a media asset, and it was a couple of years ago. And the bids that came in from the U.S. buyers were all around a certain enterprise value to EBITDA multiple. And then the Chinese buyer came in at three multiple points higher on enterprise value to EBITDA. So our sell-side client said to us, look, we'd obviously like to sell it at this higher multiple, but who are these buyers? Can, can, they, can deliver? they close? Yeah. And are we going to be able to execute? And our cover bid, the client who was fully funded, we had a lot of reps with the U.S. client who we knew would be able to deliver, was saying, don't use us as a stalking horse. And candidly, you have 24 hours to accept our bid or not. So our M&A guys had to actually make a decision. And what the decision they made, which was brilliant, as they often are, is to say to our local U.S. client who was the cover bid, give us 60 days so we can figure out whether this Chinese buyer will close. And for that, we will reimburse all of your diligence expenses. And the seller was happy with that because if they got the three multiple points higher, they would have had plenty of plenty cash. Of to cover. Correct. Yeah. So it kept our cover bidder happy. It kept our selling client happy. And candidly, had I thought about what I thought would have happened, I'm not sure I would have believed that the Chinese buyer would have closed, but they did. And so everyone was happy. At the end of the day, we had a happy sell-side client. We actually had a happy cover bidder who got all their expenses reimbursed. And we had a happy buyer in this new Chinese buyer. So you have to understand the ability of these firms to execute. Have you noticed the way Chinese corporates are dealing with private equity firms? Has that evolution been surprising at all? Yeah, that was another epiphany on this current trip, which is that one of our bankers took us to see a $5 billion enterprise value consumer company in China. And they only had businesses in China and in Australia. And they were looking to expand outside of the region. And the reason for the meeting was the founder who owned a very large majority of the company and his business development person wanted to meet me so I could make introductions to three or four of the best consumer private equity firms in the world, the global private equity firms who could help them build their business in the U.S. and Europe. And I just sat there as someone who's been in the industry literally since it started, since the early 80s, saying, wow, is this a role reversal? Like, literally in the 80s, the image of private equity to corporations was not a very positive one. In the 90s, all of a sudden, they were allowed a little bit in the boardroom, but still felt a little bit renegade, and started getting real credibility in the 2000s. But for now, for a $5 billion enterprise value business, the founder to ask us to introduce them to these global private equity firms, I thought, wow, they've really come of age. Have arrived. Yeah. yeah. So Brian, in the US, the P models often buy a mature business, optimize it. In China, P firms are more focused on developing companies that are going to help solve, as you mentioned, domestic problems or address the domestic consumer business. Talk about that dynamic. What are some of the big issues facing China and how are clients responding to those challenges? We talked about the Chinese consumer. You think about the US retail market, and we have a lot of stores. That infrastructure is not nearly as built out, and they've almost skipped a generation and gone straight to the e-commerce generation through some of the big players and more local players as well. One thing that people are focused on is how do you distribute through that mechanism in a more effective way in order to reach the Chinese consumer where they live. There are certain elements of that supply chain logistics channel that aren't fully built out. 
The big one is really the cold storage chain. So supply chain really from farms, from fisheries, all the way through to the consumer and making sure that your fish is being kept cold. The stats show it's like 15% of fish in China is kept cold through the logistical chain, something like 5% of fruit. I think the spoilage rate of fruit is somewhere in the order of magnitude of 40%. So how can you improve that yield, get more product to the consumer, and obviously cut down your waste along the way? The other thing I would say is really around next-generation manufacturing. Anything that plays into that, whether it be the automation theme, so outfitting factories with automated equipment, the robotics theme, which is sort of a related theme in terms of having robots do the actual manufacturing, anything that plays into that is something that our clients are very excited about. Obviously, there's a lot of momentum in the market. That deal size is getting bigger. Fees are getting a little bit more robust. And the sophistication of everyone is on the rise. What's holding the market back at this stage? What are the impediments to even more deal flow in the area? Certainly, there's a lot of capital to deploy. And there's obviously the growth that we've talked about that you can chase and the opportunity set that you can chase. One thing we would think about would be the lack of institutionalization around the sort of leverage finance product that exists in Asia. It's still largely a bank market. And what we've seen in other markets, U.S. and Europe, is the private equity market and sort of the sustainability of the private equity market was really facilitated by the development of the institutional lending market and skewing the lending for leveraged buyouts away from local banks, which may have some advantages, but by and large, the institutional market tends to be a more durable market over time. Any signs that that's picking up? Any major deals where they really have been? So the acquisition finance you'd see in the U.S.? Certainly for some of the larger deals that have happened, you've had to tap into that institutional market. Some of those have been cross-border, so they've been able to do that in the U.S. and Europe. As it relates to the local market, we haven't really seen the catalyst. If you dial it back to the financial crisis, pre-financial crisis in Europe, I think that story is important to think about. The lending for leveraged buyouts was by and large a local bank market. And again, that had some advantages. It's often cheaper because banks are in the business of lending to local businesses and want to facilitate local business activity. But there are some disadvantages, things like duration, things like amortization, things like the durability for selling from yourself to the next person, having that leverage just basically roll forward to the same group of debt buyers. If you think back to the financial crisis and you think about the difference between the U.S. and Europe at that time, We had a major event, both in U.S. and in Europe. The response to it was very different. In the U.S., banks recapitalized very quickly through the TARP program and got back to being front-footed around lending activity. In Europe, banks really turned inward and were sort of taken off the playing field for a period of time. And that enabled folks like ourselves to really step into that void and facilitate our private equity clients, who had a lot of money to deploy at that period of time, to go out and do deals. And as time progressed, even as those banks have come back onto the playing field, the market has really shifted away from a bank market to an institutional lending market. A lot of the same pre-crisis dynamics exist in Asia today. We just don't necessarily see the catalyst that could force local private equity firms 
from borrowing from local banks and more into the institutional market. And then the second inhibitor around that is really, again, it's not a monolith. So you look at the Asia region writ large and you're dealing with multiple different currencies. And the depth of some of those markets is enough to attract global capital to really invest and create a strategy around those markets. But in other markets, it's likely to be more shallow of a market and may not attract that same depth of capital. So Allison mentioned disruption and that being a big theme in China now. Brian, what conversations have you had with clients around that space? The biggest theme around disruption that we really see in the Chinese market, which you've seen dramatic growth in over the last 10 years, is fintech and the market for consumer payments. If you dial it back into the mid-2000s, most Chinese consumers didn't even have a bank account. And you fast forward to today, not only do they have a bank account, but the economy is 95-ish percent cashless. And that ecosystem has come to be dominated by some, mainly the e-commerce players that have developed these payment apps originally to facilitate payment through their e-commerce channel, but now in the business of capturing data around what the consumer is doing throughout their life, whether it be buying things offline, renting bikes, renting cars through the bike sharing, car sharing programs, things like that. That's probably the biggest and best example of disruption that has happened across the Chinese economy in the recent past. And I think a lot of clients are trying to figure out how to feed into that type of disruption. How can they take advantage of that social wave that's occurred around fintech and around payments? So, Alison, after two decades of traveling to China, what are the biggest non-work-related changes you've noticed as you're walking down a street in Shanghai? Does it feel at all like the same city you saw 20 years ago? Or what changes stand out? Oh, no, it is completely different. I mean, first of all, you can't see the sky. You have to look way up. The amount of building and construction that's happened in that city is just extraordinary. The hotels are better. The food is amazing. Shopping, which I don't get a lot of, but in between client meetings. It's just the sophistication of every client dialogue we have there is very different in all seriousness. So, Brian, I mentioned earlier you're running the innovation lab within the investment bank. What does that involve day to day? And what's the goal and why was it created and what are you hoping to do there? What we're looking to do there is really take a much longer term view on the big themes and trends that we think are going to shape the global economy 15, 20, 25 years out. A lot of it will be around technology disruption and then working with our corporate clients on a one-off bespoke basis in order to help them think through how could some technology disruption impact my business and what can I do about it today to potentially insulate my business if I think it's a threat or potentially be front-footed around that and invest behind that trend with the hopes that I could be a dominant player behind that trend 15, 20, 25 years in the future. So is it an additional service we're providing the corporate clients or is it helping them look at transformative transactions that they might do? It's a little bit of both. If you think about who we are as Goldman Sachs, we think about M&A a lot. And so what we try to do is we try to think about a problem, analyze that problem through the lens of the client, and where it's appropriate, the prescription is what can you go buy in order to invest behind that particular trend. Allison, you recently joined the management committee here at Goldman Sachs. After a long career at Goldman, what does it feel like to be playing a role in the 
committee that runs the firm. I have to say it's exciting, and I'm so honored to be part of the management committee. I think for everyone who knows me, I love this firm. I love our people. And I'm really excited about the forward. So to be part of the discussion shaping the future of the firm is something I feel really privileged to be part of. All right. Well, congratulations. Allison and Brian, thanks for joining me today. Thank you. Our pleasure. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Thanks for listening. I hope you join us again next time. This podcast was recorded on July 31st, 2018. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.